it's an, it's a very easy thing to what what I would call today virtue politics um, that I can present myself as virtuous by attacking industry um, and not have to worry about the consequences of the decisions that are made. Hello, hello, hello again. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Swift Half with Snowden with me, Christopher Snowden. Um, one of the things I love about doing this show is I not only get to speak to people I admire, often people I haven't spoken to before, uh, but also hopefully introduce uh, people that you might not have come across before necessarily um, and different perspectives. And uh, so on that uh, theme, I'm very happy to uh, welcome on the show somebody I've been following for a long time. He uh, blogs at uh, Riskmonger. That's risk-monger.com. Uh, he's David Zarek. David, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, Chris. Although um, my apologies if you see some steam coming out while I'm speaking. I haven't put the heating on in my house yet because it's just too damn expensive for energy here in Belgium. Good man. Well, if you see steam from me, it will be me vaping. So don't worry. Um, <laughs> Same David, can, can you just uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sort of in transition. I was a professor for 17 years. Uh, before that, I worked in the uh, chemical and pharmaceutical industry for a company called Solve, and then also doing some consulting work and also uh, work at the chemical, uh, European Chemicals Agency, um, sorry, um, Chemical Indus Industry uh, Agent, uh, Association. Um, but now I think I'm just full-time mongering, um, giving speeches, traveling and writing. And I mean, you, 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 you write about various different things, but one of the main themes is policymaking in at the EU level in particular, which is a real sausage factory and the NGOs and particularly the environmental NGOs, the anti-science NGOs, um, people trying to get herbicides and pesticides, various chemicals banned based on the precautionary principle as, as uh, they describe it. Uh, you've been writing some very interesting stuff recently, you've done a series of posts about what you call the tobacconization of industry in general and how how all sorts of different industries are being shoved out of the policy making process being demonized and 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 so on you're not too keen on all the the taught lawyers and uh, and people making money out of scare stories such as uh, glyphosate roundup and so on um so i don't know how you have the patience to be honest with you to deal with these people because you're, you're hugely outnumbered there in brussels almost a lone voice speaking out against these people. And you also been saying that you, you think the industry has been quite weak in, in standing its ground. Um, well, I don't know where to start. Should we start with um, with Roundup, with, with glyphosate? Because yeah. this is a product that, you know, if people don't know much about it, they probably just think it's bad and it causes cancer and so on. So what, what was the story with this? Because it's kind of a miracle product, right, Roundup? It, it basically kills everything but the one thing you want to keep alive in, in the field. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they call it the herbicide of the century uh, because... Uh, you 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 have to understand that it is a very benign um, chemical. It's part of what goes in. Well, glyphosate goes into different formulations uh, as a herbicide to kill weeds, and it was introduced in the 1970s. Um, I grew up on a farm in the 1970s, and of course, I was uh, as a child one of those that had to sit in the hot sun and pull weeds all the time. Uh, so I think we have to understand what it actually did to farming and uh, what it did to increasing yields and reducing the uh, labor costs on farms. Uh, so it was extremely successful. 
uh, and um, you you can drink it. Um, there's no reason to, uh, obviously, but uh, it it will it is safe. It breaks down in the soil, so it's also environmentally uh, very benign. Um, but uh, it does one uh, thing that the, it just drives the NGOs crazy. It makes GMOs, particularly uh, types of Roundup Ready or herbicide tolerant uh, maize and soy, um, it, it works together so that farmers can you know, spray after the seeds start coming up and uh, be able to keep a, a good harvest uh, with limited intervention on the soil. Um, and um, so it justifies or legitimizes genetically modified organisms being grown. Um, and so in order to stop GMOs, since GMOs don't kill people, uh, the NGOs have focused for the last five years on the agent that sort of justifies or makes it economically viable, and that's Roundup. Um, originally manufactured as a brand by Monsanto, it became quite an attractive uh, target for the NGOs. You attack Monsanto, you delegitimize the source, uh, and uh, you create public outrage. And um, the fact that you don't have any science, um, or you get tort lawyers to pay some scientists to go to IARC to produce a document that says it's a carcinogen, and you print money. Yeah, and that's what's happened. And in California, there was some lawsuits a few years ago, right? And I mean, basically every scientific agency has shown that glyphosate is safe, except for IARD, yeah. the international, what's it called? International Agency on... Research on Cancer, yeah. Research on Cancer. Um, and, you know, as as often happens in America, like ridiculous sums of money have <laughs> been, been demanded. I don't know if it went to appeal and was reduced. That's usually the way it goes. But there was, I think, one guy who claim to basically got cancer as a result of being exposed to glyphosate i think and it's sometimes it's uh hard to uh, explain because the non-hodgkin's lymphoma can be caused by thousands of different exposures um and uh i i don't want to belittle any any claims and such but the amount of advertising that the law firms basically did uh is in the hundreds of millions and they had over a hundred thousand cases um the first few cases uh were victorious for the lawyers but the last seven um that have gone on against Bayer now which uh, the company that bought monsanto uh have uh, ruled in Bayer's favor so um you can't continually win on outrage alone and i think that's one of the points that the scientific evidence is not there. You can pay a retired scientist four hundred and fifty dollars an hour, uh, and they'll do they'll do what you know whatever you want them to do, and they'll they'll say you know the science is not certain on this case, or we're not exactly clear what causes the cancer. And with that, a jury of generalists uh, will listen to the emotional arguments about some evil industry making millions in profits and not uh, caring about the public. And the lawyers take more than 50% of the money. Another 25% go to the rather curious financial arms that are funding the law firms. Um, and whatever's left will go to the victims, which is usually quite small, if anything at all. Yeah. 
I didn't know you grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm as well. And so I, I, my, my dad's and my brother's both farmers. And I still hear particularly from my dad about the various threats to various very important products, you know, and the, the, the EU in particular banning anything that works pretty much. Um, the other one, um, neonicotinoids, which again, people don't really know about other than they think that they kill lots of bees. I think people assume it's a spray. It's not actually a spray, as I understand it. It's, it's a sealant, right, for the seeds. You basically paint the seed with it, and it goes into the ground. So it never goes into the air or anything like that. But a very similar story with that. And uh, the, the EU has actually banned those, I think. Is that right? Yes, uh, there are. I mean, there are different types of uh, neonics, as a species, because neonicotinoid is a rather hard thing to say, but it's a, it's a nicotine-based, uh, uh, in this case, in, insecticide. Um, and by treating the seeds rather than um, treating the spraying it, what's called a foliar application, uh, you reduce the use of insecticides, which means you also reduce the runoff into the water. Uh, and as it's as it's systemic, it will only be uh, only affect the insects that will eat into the plant. Uh, so, for example, uh, these wonderful fields of yellow that uh, we would see on our landscapes, uh, which is uh, oilseed rape, or in North America, it's called canola. Um, you know, they uh, they have particular predators um, that will get in at a very early stage and destroy the plant before the farmer can even see it. And so they work very effectively um, and uh, very economically and in a very environmentally benign way. Now, there was uh, a decline in bee populations, particularly honeybee populations, uh, around 10 years ago. Um, and uh, of course, when you have a decline in pollinators, there's something wrong with the um, with the system. Uh, what's causing it? Well, it could be many things. It could be climate change. It could be diesel exhaust fumes. It it could be um, different urbanization uh, that's destroying a lot of the natural um, habitats for the bees. Uh, but it could also be pesticides. And of course, the NGOs, if they are going to choose their poison, they will choose pesticides as the cause of this. But there was no direct link to say that the honeybees were actually, uh, you know, as I said, going extinct, which they weren't. Um, uh, because of contact with pollen that has coming out of these flowering crops. So, um, but it worked well, this uh, campaign that if we lose the bees, uh, I don't think Einstein actually said it, but if we lose the bees, uh, humanity will also go extinct. So you've got a good Armageddon you know, theory in this case, evil industry making lots of profits and industrial agriculture, uh, making sure that in this case, uh, the bees will die. So the precautionary principle was applied because you could not prove that it was not uh, the neonics. So in an abundance of precaution, they, they banned it quite quickly as a political agreement with the French government at the time. Okay, um, so farmers, particularly in certain areas uh, that are more prone to these types of mites that um, will, uh, uh, will destroy uh, particularly oilseed rape, stop planting it. Uh, the UK used to, uh, used to be the third largest crop and a main export of oilseed rape. They're now importing it. Uh, so that's bad economically. 
uh, that's also bad for the bees because the, these wonderful yellow flowers is one of the first um, things that uh, you know come out in the springtime. And so it's an important source of pollen as the bees are emerging from uh, their wintering. And so they've removed a major source of food for the bees. Um, and on top of that, I believe that now scientists can say with a certain amount of certainty that it's uh, cold winters that were responsible for a large amount of the bee dying off population. But we're not going to go back and reinstate these um, you know, um, seed-treated neonics, which is sad because actually seed-treating reduced the runoff into the environment of certain pesticides and was able to be better controlled by the farmer. So it's a more precise uh, uh, technology than uh, the older technologies, which we had to go back to using, like perithrins, uh, which by the way, can be produced organically uh, as well and is produced organically uh, in countries uh, like Rwanda, where uh, they, the military has taken over and has increased the growth of chrysanthemum flowers and a lot of women and child labor is brought into this case so that we can be able to produce an organic approved uh, alternative to neonics. Isn't that sweet? And I mean, obviously not everywhere, not every government has banned neonics. I guess they're legal in America, are they? Have they seen this big drop off in bee pop? No, it's not legal in America. No, they, um, the Obama administration at the time did a, um, a set up a research commission to report back uh, because after the European precautionary ban, and they said there's no problem. Okay. And what was the story with Anne Glover? She was the, the first and only chief scientific advisor, was it, to the European Commission? Yes. Um, in fact, this is, um, this is actually, uh, I, I'd have to say, one of the big tragedies for Brussels. Uh, there was a decision um, to introduce a chief scientific advisor to uh, the uh, president of the European Commission. So um, in this case, that would be Ursula von der Leyen. And it would just be someone with a small office of three or four people who could watch the different debates going on and be able to be the sort of scientist in the room who could give advice when needed. As Churchill said, scientists should be on tap, not on top. And uh, of course, uh, if there is a study that comes out that shows, you know, terrible losses of bee populations due to, you know, neonics, someone like uh, Ann Glover could go through the documents and uh, look at the quality of the research, look at the quality of the organizations, and advise the uh, president of the commission and his cabinet or her cabinet on uh, the best form of action. So it was an extremely useful, very low cost way to ensure that you would have good governance and rational policy. Now, she was rather outspoken though about GMOs and quite simply said, you know, you're entitled to your opinion you know, and you can choose your opinion, but you can't choose your facts, a rather famous expression. And she was standing up to uh, a lot of the NGO uh, anti-GMO campaigns. Um, and so um, a certain group, I think around 10 NGOs, environmental NGOs, led by uh, this really nasty group of hyenas called Corporate Europe Observatory, um, decided that it was time to remove that post. And they um, 
petitioned in a very hard way. Uh, they lobbied um, the um, then president of the commission to remove uh, Anne Glover's post and replace it with a rather quiet uh, scientific board, which um, well didn't really exist in any sort of, uh, it was called on virtually when needed. And so the voice of science had been silenced within the European Commission, at which point we've seen what's happened since the Green Deal. Yeah, right. So and I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, that you've got a, a small group of NGOs forcing out a, a, a respected scientist because they don't like what she's saying, mm -hmm. because she's right about the science and they're wrong. How, how do they get so much influence and power, these, these organizations? Uh, they're loud. They're they're loud. They're aggressive. Nobody likes them shouting outside their window or you know throwing paint on their doors. Um, and uh, it, it's it's also um, if you're not accountable, then you can easily make the you know the problems go away. <clears throat> Let's give them money. Um, or let's, uh, you know, let's do something, uh, let, let's direct them towards people we don't like in particular. So we'll, we'll fund these NGOs to, to do campaigns that are sort of in the interests of some of our uh, organizations. But it's also structural as well. There are quite a few people from NGOs that reach the top of their game in their mid thirties. You know, there, there, there aren't many layers. It's not like a, a, a company where you've got different steps up the corporate ladder and you can be you know, up for promotion every 18 months to, you know, two years. Um, so if you're in your mid thirties and you're at the, you're the head of a NGO uh, or, you know, can be a small NGO, doesn't matter. The next step is to go into government and you're, often in contact with government people. So, and it's no problem for uh, governments to employ people coming in from NGOs. It's a bigger problem if you work for industry, but in industry, I think you, you're in a better structure and a better uh, opportunities for you in any case. So there are a lot of activists who are now working in governments. And I think the most incredible one recently was the German government decided uh, this is under the Green Party and um, uh, Annalena Baerbock, um, who basically named the international executive director of Greenpeace, Jennifer Morgan, uh, as the chief um, climate representative for the government of Ger Germany. She's now an employee of the German government flying around the world. She was the head of the COP27 uh, delegation for Germany. And she's running her campaign exactly as she would when she was at Greenpeace. And, right. and it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Greenpeace hasn't replaced her. So I think she's just on loan. Right. She'll, she'll probably return after, you know, after, well, I think she probably has to do a German proficiency exam at some point. She's an American. And then they gave her a passport. Now, I thought they only did that for football players, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> So it, it kind of seems <laughs> it kind of seems extraordinary that the the farming lobby doesn't win more of these battles. I mean, maybe this is naive, but I mean, it seems like the the EU's main function really is to is to prop up European farming, right? The common agricultural policy, all the subsidies, it's the biggest part of the budget, I think, and yet you keep having fairly small, narrow groups of people essentially crippling agriculture. Yeah. Why, why does that happen? 
Unfortunately, farmers themselves um, as a voting block are quite small. There's uh, only around 12 million farmers in the EU and that population is actually going down um, as the yields are coming up, which is quite unique. Um, but what, what you have at this point, it's not only really just demographics, but if you don't have a strong political voice, um, in this case, not a large movement, uh, whereas the organic uh, political lobby is, is quite large, and you have to make a decision, you will look at the path of least resistance. Now, um, unfortunately, farmers are also very respectful people as well. So um, I, I think it in July, there was a bit of a flare up um, and, you know, you can easily bring in 20 tractors into the center of Brussels and, and stop traffic completely. Um, but um, unfortunately, farmers are also quite busy uh, with their work. Um, yeah. so, so who's actually speaking up and who's protecting them um, and the technologies that they need? Unfortunately, it's the chemical industry and they don't have a lot of friends because they're industry. Who else? What other voices will stand up for agriculture? Uh, we need the prices to go up massively before people start to wonder, hey, what's going on here? And so consumer groups may start to take more of an interest. But um, most of the cases, uh, you can say and do what you want against agricultural technologies. And there'll be very little voices that will have credibility. Um, I told the, I was speaking to a group of uh, pesticide companies and I told them one time, just take a year off, stop selling your product and see what happens. Um, and yeah, of course they, that would go against their ethical codes of conduct, of course, and their business models. But, um, but we really have to try to change what's happening because it's, an, it's a very easy thing to, what, what I would call today virtue politics, um, that I can present myself as virtuous by attacking industry um, and not have to worry about the consequences of the decisions that are made. And I mean, what's- What, what was that flare up all about in July? I kind of saw bits and pieces in, in from uh, Belgium and Netherlands farmers protesting. I wasn't quite sure exactly what they're protesting about. And a lot of people who were talking about it seemed to be conspiracy theorists, but it did look like a genuine protest, but I couldn't quite work out what, what was the cause of it. Well, I think that the, the farmers the, the farmers are getting uh, angrier in Europe, which is important because um, I think that's a big difference with the U.S. In the U.S., you've got the angry farmer who doesn't trust anything that politicians are going to do and they speak up at, an, at any moment. Um, but uh, this was in particular, in the Netherlands, it was uh, particularly uh, related to a decommissioning of certain farms uh, or taking farms out of production in order to meet uh, their commitments to um, the greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, these farms were um, very efficient farms. And uh, of course, there was protests that they, the, you know, the means for farming was being slowly eroded. What does that mean to be decommissioned? Like literally you, you ban them from, from farming? Uh, I, 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 it's a question whether they they banned them or they just you know made licensing much harder or if they actually did take the land uh, out of farm use uh, as a as a rezoning. It's it's and this is where I think conspiracy theories start to confuse what actually happened. But the point was, uh, it was a move by the government to reduce their agricultural footprint. Now I'd rather see a, a an efficient country like the Netherlands producing more. Uh, than uh, Austria or Switzerland, which have these wonderful bucolic images of cows with bells on them on hillsides uh, that are not very uh, productive because we need sustainable intensity.
intensification. Uh, we need better production and better yields from less land, and we can rewild the less productive land. But that's not going to happen under the present regimes. So can you tell me about the farm to fork strategy, which oh. I gather is pretty important, but a lot of people don't really know about including myself. Really. It's, it's part of the Green Deal. Uh, now, the Green Deal is meant to combat climate change, and it's a legacy policy set up by um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, but uh, essentially led by Franz Timmermans, who's a Dutch politician who really prides himself on uh, you know, the sort of war on capitalism. And um, so essentially they're going to address the um, impact or the footprint of farming on uh, climate change by setting certain demands by 2030, uh, in particular to reduce the use of pesticides by 50%, which ones we're not really sure, but uh, reduce the use of certain types of fertilizers by 25%, okay? These are synthetic, by the way. They speak of, they call them chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides because somehow organic pesticides aren't chemicals. Uh, this is part of what happens when you get rid of the scientists in the room. They want a toxic-free Europe. This is what they called farm to fork as well. Um, toxic freezer, just don't, don't get me started. So, um, and then on top of that, they would like to see 25% of land uh, being used or farmed organically by 2030. At the moment in Europe, it's 4% of farmland that is organically farmed. And that's mainly in Italy, France, and Austria. And more than half of that is grassland, so not what I would call intensive agriculture. So I don't know how we're going to get from an effective 2% of farmland being farmed organically to 25%. Um, and most scientific, most scientific organizations, uh, and including the European Commission's own joint research center, said this is going to cause major losses in yield, major food production headaches, uh, as well as you know, global stresses on food security. Yeah. Then the Ukraine and uh, the response to the European, uh, the response of the European Commission to the crisis coming up is that there was alarmism and uh, that we need to make sure that we, um, you know, we have a more sustainable agriculture. But what's the target? What's the target date for this? To 20, all happen by? 2030. 2030, 80, yeah, well, I mean, uh, 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 seven years and two months. I, I, it's a really good yeah. question. Uh, this is normal in the commission to have aspirational goals. You know, we talked about Vision 2020 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and these aspirational goals are, are nice, but the commission has kind of confused that with regulations. And so I, I can't really be certain how you can introduce a, uh, a regulation based on a dream. But they right. can do most countries, I think, are going to be uh, unable to, to meet the goals. They'll just move the goalposts, and it won't at all be positive for the environment. In fact, it'll be quite destructive for the environment and for consumers. Sure. I mean, what would if they did achieve this, roughly what would be the effect on, on production yields and, and prices? Do you think? Oh, it, it will go down. We will import. I mean, Europe is already um, a, a food import, net food importer, uh, but it will go up dramatically. Uh, of course, if we continue to ban certain pesticides like glyphosate, we won't be able to import any animal feed. Solution is quite obvious. Just stop eating meat. Um, and so uh, you, you're going to begin to see uh, major shifts in um, not just prices and uh, 
uh, trade of, of food. Um, but also, uh, unfortunately, it's going to affect developing countries in a, in a very serious way because they will not be able to enjoy technologies if there's a risk they won't be able to export to the European Union. So the smallholders will continue to struggle. Uh, they'll continue to um, have to farm organically, um, which means their children will probably be pulling weeds and breaking leaves. And that's, um, you know, that's tragic, but um, no, the precautionary principle, you're never, you're never actually responsible for the consequences. You're, you're caring, you're making decisions in the interest of being good. Right, nearly out of time already, I'm afraid. But the final question, um, I told you it would be brief. Uh, what's, um, what hope is that? I mean, it sounds that they're not going to achieve this target by 2030, but they're clearly going to keep moving in direction. They're keep, going to keep banning things and, and making life harder for farmers and putting up the prices of food. Uh, is there any hope of what, what, what can be done? Well, my series uh, that's called the industry complex, where I start with the whole idea that all industries being tobacconized uh, comes up with the main view. You've got to stand up. Industry's got to stop, you know, bowing. I mean, industry was raising their glass to the farm to fork and the green deal uh, strategies. It affects other productions and chemicals as well and uh, energy um, without stopping and giving the European commissioners a shake. And I think the, Industry has to start speaking with one voice. Uh, at the moment, industry is much like the second slowest zebra. You know, there's a lion munching on the slowest zebra today. And well, that's really too bad, but I can live for another day. Well, you know, this tobacco industry today, tomorrow, it's going to be the pesticides. The day after that, pharmaceuticals. Um, that lion has, uh, you know, is very difficult to satiate. It's, uh, it's got an enormous appetite and will continue to attack industry. Industry has got to start restoring their sense of image of trust with the public. It has to start taking a stronger line against stupid policies that makes uh, the future of industry almost impossible in Europe. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's kind of puzzling that they don't take a stronger line to me, but maybe there's reasons for that that I don't, I don't fully understand. David, it's fantastic speaking to you. I uh, love reading your blog and following your Twitter feed. So that's risk-monger.com, folks. Um, if you want to go on and see what David's been writing about, keep up the good fight, um, the the uphill battle. And thank you, folks, for um, for watching. We'll be back in another couple of weeks. Um, if you want to give us some money, um, you can do. You can donate at ia.org.uk slash donate or patreon.com slash IA London. If you are a donor, thanks very much. Um, much appreciated. You help pay for shows like this. As I say, we'll be back in, in two weeks' time. Another great guest. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you, David, for joining us. Goodbye. Bye.